Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 through 3. Yeah, I plan to go further, and I spent a half an hour studying the passage, and I thought that's not going to happen. So, verses 2 through 3 for today. 1 Thessalonians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the city of Thessalonica. The church, if you remember, started out in great adversity, but they're strong and faithful because of that. This early epistle is written to encourage them in that faithfulness and to also help them to understand more about the eternal things of God. So let's find out what Paul begins to say in this letter, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing, remembering what? Your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father. We'll stop here for now, and here in today's passage, Paul begins this letter by first giving thanks for them, the Thessalonian believers. I love that. He, I give thanks to you, because... That's how Christians should feel about each other, right? Thankfulness. We give thanks to God always for all of you. And look, they not only gave thanks to them, but they always gave thanks to God for them all. Thanks is in the present tense, which shows us that this was their continual feeling toward these Thessalonian believers, always, never ever skipping a day, constantly thankful for them. And so, as Paul and his companions are writing this letter to these new believers in the city of Thessalonica, they're just filled with joy and thanks when they think of them, and and they want them to know that fact. Let me ask you, when other believers think of you, are they thankful? Are they grateful? What's the first thing that comes to their minds when they think of you? See, you can learn a lot about a person by what he or she appreciates. And Paul and his team constantly express their gratitude for God's operation in their own lives and also in his work in the lives of the Christians in Thessalonica. And rather than being a source of grief, which is often the case, sad to say, look, these Christians evoked gratitude and they are a great example for all of us here this morning. So again, the question... Do other believers give thanks to God for you when they think of you? Why? Because you're a blessing, right? Because you're an encourager. Because you show people what Christ is like. Because you love people and you're greatly loved in return. Because you're involved in other people's lives for the good. Helping them when they are hurting and correcting them in love when they are erring. Because you show others that Christ really does give victory, that Christ really is sufficient, that Christ gives true comfort in the midst of trials, that Christ is worthy, truly worthy of giving our all to. That be said about you? Sadly, (laughs) when I look back and think of a number of Christians, I get sad and I get discouraged. I'm being serious. Wow. You're a downer, John. Yeah. But, but... This, it's true. They're living in mediocrity and it makes me sad. 
They're indulging in sin. They're spiritually coasting instead of fighting with all their spiritual armor on. They don't care about biblical doctrine or the deep things of God which makes them shallow and weak. They add Christ into their lives instead of of putting Him first in their lives where He belongs. They're hypocrites. They aren't known for their godly love. They live like they have no hope whatsoever in what lies ahead. They're full of self and the ways of the world that fade and rot. And it's all very discouraging. But... Not us. Anybody? That wasn't very convincing. (laughs) But not us. Right? May that be the case here, right? We're not perfect, no, but, but we must pursue. And we must fight and we must pray much and dive into the Word and, and help each other and run the race with endurance and fight like good spiritual warriors result. I thank God for you. May that be the case here. And I believe it is. Second, Paul along with Silvanus and Timothy, they prayed for the Thessalonian Christians, making mention of you in our prayers. That's encouraging to know, isn't it? That other godly people are praying for you. How encouraging. What's prayer? Prayer is communicating with God. And your prayer life is a great revealer of where you're at in your own relationship with the Lord. How do you fare? Look, the Bible's very clear that God hears the heartfelt prayers of His people, that our good, good God delights in His people's prayers, that our God sovereignly works through the prayers of His people, and that prayer is powerful. So pray. Pray, pray, pray. In Luke 18, Jesus tells the parable of the persistent widow. The widow demanded justice from the judge, and so she persistently came to him again and again and again. Get justice for me from my adversary. At first he said no, but later on he said, because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her. And that is a parable on persistent prayer. The point is this, that If the bad judge did that for the widow, how much more will our good God do for us whom he loves? See, the judge was unloving, evil, ungracious, merciless, and unjust. But our God is loving and good and gracious and infinitely merciful and always just. The widow in the parable was nameless and insignificant. But as Christians, we are God's very own beloved children, his bride, whom he laid down his life for to save And the simple point is this, how much more us, whose heartfelt prayers are sweet to the ears of God, who loves us and who hears us. Look, God wants His people to pray to Him. We should earnestly desire to commune with God in prayer because we love Him. And prayer is a massive part of the Christian life. So again, how's your prayer life? Think about this. Jesus often went up to the mountain alone and he prayed all night to the Father. When's the last time you did that? Think about that. The needs are great, right? I mean, we are a needy people. The needs are great. All night prayer times should be a regular occurrence amongst us, I'm sure. But when's the last time that that actually happened in your own life? Has it ever happened? When's the last time you prayed earnestly and persistently for even an hour? Hey, this is meant to stir us up a bit, myself first. Because prayer is such an important part of the Christian life and most Christians could stand to pray more to the God whom we love and to pray more earnestly to the God whom we love. Here's a couple of quotes that are meant to challenge us and encourage us. Robert Murray McShane said, God's children should pray. They should cry day and night to Him. God hears every one of your cries in the busy hour of the daytime and in the lonely watches of the night. 
It's absolutely right. Andrew Bonner said, Oh, brother, pray in spite of Satan. Pray. Spend hours in prayer. Rather neglect friends than not pray. Rather fast and lose breakfast, dinner, tea, and supper, and sleep too than to not pray. And he's right. Matthew Henry said, when God intends great mercy for his people, the first thing he does is set them a praying. John Bunyan said, prayer will make a man cease from sin, or sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. Pray often, for prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge for Satan. And again, that's right. So pray, right? Pray much. (laughs) Pray earnestly. Pray persistently. Pray for everything. Pray for yourself and pray for me and pray for others. Look, because Paul and his companions love these Thessalonian Christians, he prayed for them. Doesn't that make sense? Right? I mean... If you really love someone, I mean, if you really, truly love someone, then you'll pray for them. Because you know that prayer is powerful, and you know that the best thing you can do for them is to bring them and their needs before the Lord God Almighty, who hears and who cares. See how it works? So so they prayed for them. Third, they remembered them. It's very revealing. See, to Paul and his companions, it wasn't, out of sight, out of mind, not at all. Instead, they cared deeply. They loved their church family intensely. They wept with those who wept and they mourned with those who mourned. And even though they were away from many of the Christians that they knew because of their many missionary travels, look, they still prayed for them. And they still loved them. And they still wrote to them. And they still ministered to them in any way that they could and wherever they were able to. Whenever. They were able to. Look, it says they remembered them without ceasing. Remembering means to keep in mind, to keep exercising the memory, and to recollect. So, when it came to the Thessalonian believers, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy were continually and unceasingly remembering them with great love and with great affection. How good is that? An ancient letter that was written during this same time uses the words for uh, the word for without ceasing to describe an incessant cough that never seems to go away. The Thessalonians were like that, but in a good way. To Paul and his companions, fond memories, sweet memories, blessed memories all the time, constantly and continually. That's how it should be. So, what specifically did Paul and his companions remember when they remembered the Thessalonian Christians. First, look, they remembered without ceasing their work of faith, verse 3. That's very interesting because some Christians get all bent out of shape when they see works and faith appearing together in the Bible. But there's no need for us to get all bent out of shape here because the Word of God is crystal clear that sinners are justified and declared righteous by faith in Christ alone apart from any work. And Paul makes that very clear in Galatians 2.16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. He makes that very clear. See, as sinners, we can never cover up our guilt before God with any amount of good works because our works can't come close to ever erasing our record of sin. Sin has wages 
and works don't and can't ever come close to paying those eternal wages. Instead, God justifies us, God declares us righteous and right through the finished work of His Son, Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty of our sin as believers on the cross and achieved righteousness for us by His perfect life of obedience. See, He did all the work in saving undeserving sinners like us because of who He is and because of what He did on that cross as our substitute for sin. He did it. So biblically... We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But now look, having been justified through faith alone, a Christian is now called to the work of faith. See, So again, it's by grace that we've been saved through faith, not as a result of any works. But then look, we were indeed created in Christ Jesus for good works. So true faith bears forth tangible results based on our love for God and our desire to glorify Him with our fading lives. But first, faith. Look, Paul and his companions remembered what he says, their work of faith. And here, this isn't just talking about the initial act of saving faith in the Lord. It's talking about their continuing faith in the Lord, their faithfulness, their work of faith, their faith lived out in their lives. What is faith? Hebrews 11.1 1 says that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Substance describes a support, a confidence, a steadiness, an assurance, and a foundation. It tells us that faith provides the firm ground on which we stand while we eagerly wait for all the amazing promises that lie ahead. The word hope means to look forward to with confidence to that which is good and beneficial. It means to expect with the implication of receiving some good benefit. So, faith is what gives substance to our hopes. So, what then do we hope for? We hope for the things that God has told us that we haven't yet fully realized. Incredible things. Things like heaven and all the glories that lie ahead for us. Well, faith looks at all those hopes and it helps us to patiently wait for them And it gives us an assurance and a confidence to patiently endure through it all until we receive all those promises in full. So faith is the solid ground that allows us to confidently live for the glory of God through all the hills and valleys of this fading life. Everyone has faith, right? The real issue is, what is a worthy object of our faith? For Christians, our faith is in God. That's wise, don't you think? Our faith is in God and what God says in His Holy Word. We believe that God has spoken to us and while God hasn't told us everything that there is to know, He's told us enough about truth and salvation and life. And we put our trust in Him, this God who created all, this God who knows all, this God who never lies, this God who is truth. And even though we can't see Him, we are full of confidence that what He says is real. And that what he says is true. And our lives reflect that reality with faithful living. The work of faith. Faith is also described as the evidence of things not seen. The word evidence means conviction. So faith is a conviction that the unseen exists. This takes us a step further because this implies action. See, true conviction is willing to stake your life on your hope. I've said this before, but A.W. Pink uses the analogy of two men standing on the deck of a ship looking in the same direction. 
One sees nothing, but the other man sees a distant steamer. The difference is that the first man is looking with his unaided eye, while the second man is looking through a telescope. Well, faith is the telescope that brings the future promises of God into present focus. Faith enables us to see the unseen world that the natural person can't see. And for us who have put our faith in the Lord, we're confident. Anybody? Right? I mean, we're very confident. We're certain. We're sure because God Almighty has revealed these things to us. The Bible tells us that faith is a gift of God, Ephesians 2.8, and those who have true saving faith are certain in what God has said and they're certain in what God has done. In fact, we're so confident that we'll not only live out our faith, but we're willing to die for our faith. So yeah, first, entrust your soul into the care of God, saving faith, which then results in a lifestyle of loving obedience to the Lord who saved you, the work of faith. What does this work of faith look like? Saving faith lived out. What does that look like? Hebrews 11.1. 1. I, I love Hebrews 11. Let's look at this. The work of faith. What's that look like? It looks like Abel, who offered up a more excellent sacrifice than his brother Cain. In faith, Abel gave an offering to God from his heart based on his love for the Lord and done for the glory of God. And it wasn't road and it wasn't done out of mere duty. No, it was done because he loved God and because he wanted to glorify God. That's what the work of faith is like. It's real. It's passionate. It has God as its focus. It's seen. The work of faith also looks like Enoch who was taken away and didn't see death. See, in faith, Enoch pleased God with his life for 300 years. Think about that. He trusted God, and that trust caused him to be dedicated, devoted, and loyal to his God for centuries. See, a true work of faith remains faithful to the end, no matter how long that may be. Redeeming today for the glory of God, and then tomorrow, and then the day after that for him. Pursuing God, seeking God, earnestly following after God as our primary focus and as our first priority. Faithful to him through it all, hardship. Pain, loss, trial, suffering, faithful through it all. The thought, wow, his faith is proven. His faith bears results. I mean, look at him. He still trusts the Lord after all these decades and all these centuries. And through hills, valleys, fire, hardship, and pain. The work of faith, saving faith lived out and seen. A good work of faith also looks like Noah who feared God. See, true faith fears God, which means that Noah had a healthy respect and reverence for God that stemmed from the knowledge of God that resulted in the obedience to God. He took God and the things of God seriously, see? He knew what mattered. And as he looked at God, he both revered Him and he loved Him. That led him to obeying Him to the point of building an ark for 120 years in a land that had never seen rain. That's the work of faith. And I want to have faith like that. The work of faith also looks like Abraham who obeyed God and went where God told him to go even though he didn't know where he was going. God said, Abraham, go. Okay, where, Lord? That way. Right? Just just go. Okay, Lord, but, but where's the final destination? Don't worry about that, Abraham. Trust me and go. Okay, Lord, I'll go. That's... 
That's a real work of faith right there. That's faith in action. He obeyed God, even though it was dangerous and confusing and hard, and even though it didn't make a lot of sense to him. In faith, he did what God told him to do, trusting in the bare word of God. How was he able to do that? Faith. He knew that this world wasn't his real home anyhow. So he didn't focus on the fading things of this life, but he lived for the next, the work of faith, and that meant obeying God and trusting God even when it meant leaving everything that you hold near and dear to your heart. Faith trusts God anyhow. I want to have a faith that works like that. Saving faith that's lived out. A good work of faith also looks like Sarah, who trusted God and had a baby when she was 90. God said it, and in faith, she embraced His promises, even though those promises made little sense. See, true faith continues and endures and trusts God all the way to the end, even when things don't turn out the way that you have planned. Have things turned out the way you planned for anybody here? Come on. No. Sarah had her child... But the faith that's exemplified here is where you trust God even when things don't turn out the way you've planned. So you keep trusting, knowing that the best is yet to come, knowing that He knows what He's doing with you. And that's the kind of faith that works, that God loves, and that Paul remembers with joy. Saving faith that's lived out. The work of faith also looks like so many in the past who trusted God throughout their lives. And look, they died trusting God because in faith they knew. Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16. So they died as they lived. They died dominated by faith. And look, their faith didn't waver on their deathbed. No, but it remained and it even grew stronger. So they trusted Him until they came to their graves. How? Faith. See, God had made some promises to them and they knew in faith that God will keep all those promises and they embraced those promises. The word embrace means to greet, to welcome, and to salute. The picture here is of a people who are on a ship passing a land that they can see on the horizon waving a greeting to that land. That's a picture of how these faithful ones in Hebrews 11 treated the promises of God. Soon, that wave, that salute, that greeting will turn into an embrace, but not yet. And that's okay, because they know it's only a matter of time before they will embrace those promises. So, they live for the next life. They live for eternal things. They live for the glory of God, knowing that home is soon coming. But until then, they live out their faith with works, with action, with evidence, with fruitfulness, based on their love for God. A good work of faith is like the Thessalonians had also looks like Abraham who trusted God so much that he was willing to kill his only son. See, his faith was greatly tested and he passed the test and that's what real faith does. Hey, life is a test. Passing the test means that we trust God, that we listen to God, that we obey God, that we honor God no matter what. No matter what. It means that we have faith, and that faith that then compels us to act, to work, to live, to obey. Not just when things are are easy, but when things are hard. Though He slay me, I will follow. Though I suffer, I will follow. Though I don't understand what's going on, I'm going to follow. Though things are rough and tough and painful, I'm going to follow. That's the kind of work of faith that greatly pleases God, and that causes people like Paul to remember and to rejoice over. 
A good work of faith also looks like Isaac, who blessed Jacob and Esau, and Jacob, who blessed the sons of Joseph. What does that mean? It means that we repent when we sin and when we stumble and when we fall daily. That we honor God today, that we bow to the providence of God even when it's not what we might want. We still trust Him. Real faith says, yet not my will, but your will be done, my good Lord. It trusts Him, see. Saving faith lived out. A good work of faith also looks like Joseph who looked ahead, or like Moses' parents who weren't afraid, or like Moses who chose suffering over sin, who chose reproaches over riches, and who chose eternal treasure over earthly treasure in faith. That's the kind of faith that's lived out, that's commanded or commended, and that's rejoiced over. Saving faith lived out the work of faith. Hebrews 11 goes on to tell us that the faithful ones fear God more than they fear man or what men can do to them. They can hurt me and they can even kill me, but pain is fleeting and death is gain. The faithful ones understand this and they still live out their faith. They stand up for God and His glory even when it brings pain. They honor God even when they have to stand alone. They choose suffering over dishonoring God because they look ahead in faith. They know that suffering for Christ is better than the easy life without Christ. That, that God's glory is worth suffering for and dying for. That it's worth losing friends for. That it's worth losing everything for so long as He is pleased. The faithful understand this. And they live this out more and more. And that's what Paul means by that phrase, their work of faith. It's seen. You're saved and, and now you're living it out. It's seen. It's, it's, it, there's evidence to their saving faith because it obeys based on love. Our love for Christ, the work of faith. And as Paul remembers the Thessalonian Christians, their work of faith stands out to him and to his companions and it causes him to thank God. I love that. That's the kind of faith I want for my own life And that's the kind of faith I want for all of us here. And I think it's needed in these days. I think it's needed. And that's the kind of faith that glorifies, greatly glorifies and pleases our good God. The work of faith. What about us? Second, as Paul and his companions remember the Thessalonian Christians, they remembered their labor of love. So just as work of faith signifies saving faith that's seen and lived out, so does labor of love signify love that is seen and lived out. The word labor emphasizes sacrificial exertions that go beyond ordinary works. It's talking about ardent effort. In what? In love. Love. This is a massive compliment here because love is the chief mark of a true Christian. Right? They'll know we are Christians by our, our love. Who are we? We are those who love God and others passionately and from the heart. And only Christians can truly, truly do that. The word for love here is a Greek word agape, which is very specific. There are four Greek words for love in the Bible. Eros is the word for romantic or passionate love. Philia is a word for love that we have for those near and dear to us, our family and our friends. Storge is a word for love that shows itself in affection and care, especially for close family affections. But agape is different, for it's a distinctly godly love that comes from God 
to His people distinctly. Agape love is a love of choice. It's been called unconditional love because it chooses to love even that which is undeserving of love. Agape love is the kind of love that God has for us, His children. While we were yet sinners, enemies of God, He gave His life for us, and we are called to exhibit that kind of love for Him and for others. Look, agape love has to do with the mind. It's not simply an emotion that rises up in our hearts every now and then, but it's a principle by which we deliberately live by. And that sets Christians apart from non-Christians. See, non-Christians don't love like this because they can't love like this because this kind of love is contrary to their nature. Romans 5.5 says, The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So again, Only true Christians can love like this as a way of life, agape love, because God gives this distinct love to us, not so non-Christians. And that seems clear when you look around you. What kind of love marks the world? Not agape love. No, self-love, yes. Lustful love, yes. Love that benefits me, yes. But not a forgiving, selfless, gracious, sacrificial, turn the other cheek, I put you ahead of me for the glory of God kind of love. Not at all. But it's a must for us in Christ. And true Christians love with this agape, agape, godly love. First, we love God, of course, right? First. In Mark 12, Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was. And he said the greatest commandment is to love God. Of course. And then the second is to love your neighbor. And that makes sense. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That must come first. He is our one true God, and because of who He is, and because of what He's done, our call is to love Him, this saving God, fully and completely as much as we can. How? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. For the ancient Hebrews, the heart was understood as an organ of intellect and volition. It represented the location of one's mental activities and moral choices. Love the Lord with all your soul. The soul was the very life of the individual. It represented every facet of man's being, including his deepest desires and emotions. We're to love God like that. Love the Lord with all your mind, stressing the fact that this isn't just an emotional thing alone. No, it's a well-thought-out thing, and guess what? We're all in. Love the Lord your God with all your strength. The phrase stresses emphasis, and it may be understood as a command to love God with excessive and unrestrained devotion with all with all with all with all speaking of true love speaking of intense love a love that has captured your heart has god captured your heart now's the time to say yes has god captured your heart come on right okay don't be shy here there's no reason to be shy we love god and god is worthy Amen. And that affects our life in a profound and dramatic way. It's a love that loves with the totality of one's being because of who He is and because of what He's done for undeserving rebels like us, like you. God wants the heart and soul of the person. He wants every part of you. He doesn't want empty, rote religion, but He wants you to love Him with all your affections and all your adoration because He certainly deserves it. What about you? Is He your chief love, your first love, the one whom you love most? Because He should be. 
Who else is worthy like him? Who else loves you more than he loves you? And who else has done more for your soul than him? No one. So love him first, most, and best because of who he is and because of what he's done. All right, what else? Because it can't end there. No, you're called to love your neighbor as yourself. So if you love God, it's going to show in you loving others. Who's my neighbor? Everyone is your neighbor, not just your friends and not just the people that you like. So the call is clear. Love must mark us. Love for God and love for others. And as Paul and his companions remembered the Thessalonian Christians, their labor of love, their love that was lived out tangibly and clearly, that's the thing that stood out. That's so good because that's the way it should be. Some Christians are mean and grumpy and angry. Some are cold and harsh and unforgiving. Some are unpleasant and spiteful and unfriendly and rude. What a contradiction. That is not the way it should be. Lord, help us here to not be contradictions. What is love? One said it like this. Love is being willing to have your life complicated by the needs and struggles of others without impatience or anger. Love is actively fighting the temptation to be critical and judgmental towards another while looking for ways to encourage and praise them. Love is making a daily commitment to resist the needless moments of conflict that come from pointing out and responding to minor offenses. Love is being lovingly honest and humbly approachable in times of misunderstanding. Love is being more committed to unity and understanding than you are to winning, accusing, or being right. Love is making a daily commitment to admit your sin, weakness, and failure, and to resist the temptation to offer an excuse or shift the blame. Love is being willing when confronted by another to examine your heart rather than rising to your defense or shifting the focus. Love is making a daily commitment to grow in love so that the love you offer to another is increasingly selfless, mature, and patient. Love is being unwilling to do what's wrong when you have been wrong, but looking for concrete and specific ways to overcome evil with good. So you turn the other cheek. Love is being a good student of another, looking for their physical, emotional, and spiritual needs so that in some way you can remove the burden, support them as they carry it, or encourage them along the way. I have more. Here we go. Love is being willing to invest the time necessary to discuss, examine, and understand the relational problems you face, staying on task until the problem is removed or you've agreed upon a strategy or response. It means you're going to work on this, not just accept the status quo in your life. Love is being uh, uh, willing to always ask for forgiveness and always being committed to grant forgiveness when it's requested. Love is recognizing the high value of trust in a relationship and being faithful to your promises and true to your word. Love is speaking kindly and gently, even in moments of disagreement, refusing to attack the other person's character or assault their intelligence. Love is being unwilling to flatter, lie, manipulate, or deceive in any way in order to coerce the other person into giving you what you want or doing something your way. Love is the willingness to have less free time, less sleep, and a busier schedule in order to be faithful to what God has called you to be and do as a spouse, parent, neighbor, child of God. 
Love is a commitment to say no to selfish instincts and to do everything that's within your ability to promote real unity, functional understanding, and active love in your relationships. Love is staying faithful to your commitment to treat another with appreciation, respect, and grace, even in moments when the other person doesn't seem deserving or is unwilling to reciprocate. Love is a willingness to make regular and costly sacrifices for the sake of a relationship without asking for anything in return or using your sacrifices to place the other person in your debt. You owe me. (laughs) Love is being unwilling to make any personal decision or choice that would harm a relationship, hurt the other person, or weaken the bond of trust between you and them. Love is refusing to be self-focused or demanding, but instead looking for specific ways to serve, support, and encourage, even when you're busy or tired. How do you fare? (laughs) How about this? 1 Corinthians 13.4 Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Uh, We do well to examine ourselves at this point. Like the Thessalonian Christians, may we too be remembered for our labor of love for God that's seen in many ways, and then for others that's also seen in many ways. Third, as Paul and his companions remember the Thessalonian Christians, they remembered their patience of hope. Not just hope, but their patience of hope. That could also be translated as endurance inspired by hope. So this is a hope that bears forth tangible results in the Christian's life. What is hope? Biblical hope is a desire of some good with the expectation of obtaining it. Hope in the Bible is the absolute certainty of future good and a strong confidence that God's going to do good to us in the future. And so he's going to follow through with his promises to us as his children. And we hope in that. So hope is a confident expectation in God and in what he said to us. Good news. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He forgave us of all our sins that condemned us. He rescued us. He redeemed us. He guaranteed our future inheritance and so much more. And while we are experiencing that in part, and it's really, really, really good, it certainly isn't fully realized for us yet. No, the best certainly is yet to come for us in Christ where we will not only be made perfect, we will not only go to heaven, we will not only be with other believers, but we will see him, our beloved one, and we will be in his perfect presence forever. Hope. Hope that is sure and certain. Hope that's an anchor for our soul. Guess what? We in Christ have that hope. Amen. And that hope unites us, doesn't it? The hope makes, the hope that we have in Christ makes petty things seem small. This hope focuses us on what's truly important. This hope drives us forward. This hope helps us to live out our faith with patience and endurance and passion. This hope motivates us to godly living until that hope is fully realized in the near future. That's the patience of hope. It speaks of a hope that compels us to to keep on and to keep on to the very, very end. 
I have hope. Therefore, I can endure this trial, painful as it is. I have hope. Therefore, I can forgive that person. I have hope. Therefore, I can keep battling that sin to the bitter end, and I'm never going to stop battling. I have hope. Therefore, I can lose friends in order to honor my Lord. I have hope. Therefore, I don't have to fall into despair because I know that the best is yet to come. I have hope. Therefore, I will passionately love God and others until I breathe my last breath because I have hope. Sure hope, solid hope, certain hope, and soon that hope, it won't be hope anymore. It'll be my reality forever. Hey, it's oh so good to be a child of God, anyone? It is. Why? So many incredible reasons, but how about this? Heaven will soon be our eternal reality. Oh, what hope we have. God promises us that when we die as Christians, we go straight into His presence. We'll be freed from the pain and the sorrow and the suffering of this present life. We'll be ushered into the Lord's presence forever. We'll no longer need to walk by faith, but we will walk by sight. We will know God. We will see God. We will be with God forever and ever and ever for all eternity. Revelation 21, speaking of uh, heaven, says, The dwelling of God is with men and He will live with them. It says, we will be his people and God himself will be to them, will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away. Yes! And no more sin. What hope? And we're going there as Christians and that's a promise. No more sin, no more battle, no more tears, no more pain. Instead, eternal joy, peace, and glory. Instead, loved ones in Christ, fellow believers, family reunions in Christ. Christ Himself. And because I have this hope, I can be steadfast until I arrive. See, hope pulls me along. Or you could say, hope is the engine that pushes me forward, ever forward, faithful to the end. The world doesn't have it. No, they're empty and only Jesus can truly fill the void. They are groping and only Jesus gives true peace in this fading life. They are hopeless and only Jesus gives us a reason and purpose to live and to die. Only Jesus. No, the world doesn't have this hope, but we do. And that changes everything. And look, because we have Him and His hope, we can smile even through our tears. We can rejoice even in times of suffering. Because we know that this isn't the end of the story. No, this is simply the rough journey that leads to the right destination. Heaven, glory, Him. And it's as good as done for us in Christ. Result, when we truly understand that truth, patient endurance. I can endure. Because I know what lies ahead. Patient endurance and faithfulness to the end living for His glory, honoring Him, redeeming the time, pleasing Him in every way while we remain here on planet earth because soon we will be home. And look, when Paul and his companions remembered the Thessalonian believers, they praised God because their patient hope stood out along with their labor of love and their work of faith. What examples, what great examples they are for us today. Lord, help us to be known for our faith and our hope and our love. For God is certainly worthy of these things being seen in us His people who love Him. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for Your wonderful Word of truth. And Lord, I just pray that we would be people who 
who just take you at your word, who, who believe you and what you say, even though we don't always understand your ways, which are way beyond us. But Lord, help us and um, thank you for the Thessalonian believers and their great example for us. May we too be known for our faith, hope, and love as a church and as individuals. And may we be growing in these things. May we be convicted in a good way that compels us ever forward for your glory. We love you. We thank you. We ask you to bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen.